Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. While we all love to hate bankers like my friends Rob Marstrand and John Butler, I have asked these former bankers to join me in this video for Fortune and Freedom to discuss Brexit and why there hasn't been the exodus of the, the bankers from the city that so many predicted, so many consultancies and economists told us would happen. We've actually got a report from the European Banking Authority explaining how many bankers have left, and as ever, it's, it's a laughable amount. It's another example of, of project fear, being embarrassed and humiliated. But before we get to that, I want to introduce the, the former bankers, Rob Marstrand and John Butler. You've, uh, you've actually just introduced each other uh, to, to each other for the first time. And, um, and so I've just listened to your, your history at Lehman Brothers and at Deutsche Bank and at UBS and so on and so forth. But so that the, the viewers and the readers understand why I'm asking you these questions, John, why don't you take us through what you did at Lehman Brothers and Deutsche Bank and also the fact that you were in Germany for so long? Yeah, so I worked for German banks in Germany for about five years before I relocated to London, where at first I continued to work for German banks before I did eventually move to Lehman Brothers, where I spent a few years in the mid-90s and then moved back to a German bank, Deutsche Bank, but remained in London. And so I've got you know, quite a bit of experience both within and without the EU uh, and for EU-based as well as UK-based financial institutions. So John, just to put you on the spot, how do you say interest rate swap in German? Zinset um, swap, uh, or you could do, um, I mean, there are variations on it, but uh, but swaps is, is the term. And then a zinset swap uh, or Währung swap. Uh, if it's a currency-based one. Yeah, good. Pretty good pronunciation there too. Rob, why don't you take us through, I don't know if you've got a Swiss accent when you try and speak German, but you, you were at UBS at the strategy level for a long time. I think you spent time in Asia too, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I originally joined an outfit called SG Warburg, which was the biggest British investment bank, got bought by Swiss Bank Corporation, which merged with Union Bank Switzerland and created a giant called UBS. And um, yeah, they're Swiss. Please don't check, check whether I can speak Swiss or Deutsch or Swiss German. It's, it's, I, I picked up a few words, but not very many. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I worked on the strategy of the bank, which was anywhere in the world in any business. And we'd sort of look at uh, what could be done to expand the business. And very occasionally when businesses weren't working, whether, whether it was time to actually pull out. And as part of that, I spent a lot of time in Asia, um, working on Asia and a part of, part of the time living in Asia. Um, and working on setting up new things out there when it was in a very fast growth stage in the early 2000s. But you've since left banking, both of you, Rob's in Argentina, and John, I think you're living in London, uh, doing lots of work for us, actually, writing lots of articles for us. Let's move on to, to the data point, which sort of prompted me to, to ask both of you onto this video, and it's the European Banking Authority's report that I'm trying to find the figure here on my screen. It's so small, I can't find it. It's 95 high-earning bankers which means more than a million euros worth of, of salary, have left Britain as a result of its departure from, from the European Union. Now, that's very far from the 10 or 100 times as many that were predicted. What was your first reaction, John, when you, when you read this, this, this piece of news? Well, I wasn't terribly surprised. I, uh, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I expected, along with everyone else, that there would be some impact of Brexit and some movement of certain individuals who were particularly important to the domestic business needs uh, of you know, certain parts of the EU. But the fact is, is that 
one of the reasons why some people believe that the numbers involved here would be far higher in magnitude was because yes, on paper, on paper, human capital is very mobile. Investment banking is a human capital business. In theory, it can exist almost anywhere the key people are located who have the relationships and the experience and expertise and can do the deals. And so a lot of people thought based on that sort of reasoning that, oh, this will be easy. You know, they'll just they'll just pick up and go um, to, to stay within the EU. But human capital may be mobile on paper, but there's tremendous inertia in practice. Senior bankers tend to have families. Those families need to consider things such as schooling and the language in which they want to raise their children. Many senior London-based bankers aren't even European. By, by, by ethnicity and origin, they might be from India, they might be from Asia, and they might have learned English and want their children to learn up, uh, grow up speaking English, but they don't necessarily, they wouldn't necessarily feel quite as at home um, in a continental European country. So, you know, these are very real considerations for very valuable people. And if they say, no, we prefer to stay put, it's going to be difficult for a financial institution to force them to relocate. Yeah, there's been a bit of a war for talent as well. I actually went to the school that a lot of those children are now going to in Frankfurt. And uh, I remember I went back many years after I went to that school and there was guards with machine guns and German shepherds outside because of the security threats a result of um, a lot of American military student uh, uh, personnel's children. And also uh, there was like a Saudi prince and um, all these all these bankers from Frankfurt. And it was a really weird place, a really strange, odd world. Um, and I'm glad I left, to be honest, I went to Australia. Um, Rob, what was your reaction to, to the piece of news? Well, I know what it was because you emailed me about it. You said only 2% of those earning 1 million or more, 95 people, have relocated since the referendum. That's 71% uh, of the top pay bracket across pre-Brexit EU remain in the UK. In other words, the UK is completely dominant when it comes to these high-earning bankers, and you know, it's despite Brexit, of course. Uh, you also said it's no surprise to you, but tell us some, some more. Well, first, I'd just say I agree with what John said, um, but I maybe come at it from a slightly different perspective because of the nature of the job I did. I sort of got a, maybe an overview that very few people got of how the industry structured. And what we're talking about here basically is essentially highly paid people that work in investment banking. So, you know, highly paid um, corporate bankers, highly paid uh, traders, highly paid salespeople that work in the wholesale sort of stock and bond markets, structuring derivatives, all those kinds of people. And we're talking about fund managers. So the people that run big pots of money for investors. And those are the people that get paid the big bucks, essentially in the industry, plus senior management. So senior management have the oversight of the whole thing and work across lots of countries. Now, the way things work, you know, those people, probably make up, including all the junior levels, probably make up maximum between a quarter and a third of the industry. So you've then got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who work in all the accounting and the processing and the technology developments and support and human resources, being a human capital business, you need a lot of those, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The lawyers, masses of those, the compliance people that deal with regulation, et cetera, et cetera, and general management. And those people can be anywhere. I mean, literally, they can be anywhere in the world. And the industry has been doing this for decades. You know, I remember a trip I once had to India 
and visited, uh, I think it was Standard Chartered Bank and HSBC. And both of those banks who have huge operations in Asia as well, by the way, both of them have thousands or even tens of thousands of people in India doing technology, doing accounting, doing human resources processing. That can be done anywhere. So to the extent that that has to be in, in a bit closer to home or is in London, it's not going to move to Frankfurt. There's no reason for it to move. It, it, it's, it is where it is. There's no reason to move it. So we're only talking about a very thin layer of people that actually need to move. And those people essentially are the ones that have to have, by regulation, have to sort of be within a European Union jurisdiction to service European Union clients or customers. And that's not very many people. And on a lot of deals and a lot of situations, you'll have the, the, the well-paid guy sitting in London and he'll have some other people around that support him. And only a handful of those need to be you know, close to those European customers because the rest of them are dealing with people from all around the world. So it's no surprise to me at all. Now, I'll just add one more point on this. When you look at the economics of an investment bank, and uh, by the way, an asset manager is not that different. Look at the economics of an investment bank. Let's say they make $100 of revenue. And I'm talking dollars because it's all, it's all done with the American currency, the reserve currency of the world. $100 of revenue. Uh, roughly something like $60 goes to the people. It's the cost of employing the people. So that's their salaries, pensions, um, you know, welfare, uh, you know, the, the social taxes and their bonuses. And then roughly, say, another 20% goes on other costs. So that's renting buildings, paying for technology, travel, when you're allowed to, that type of thing. And then maybe 5% goes on corporate income tax. So you've got 60% goes to the people, 5% goes to the government, and of that 60, maybe half goes on taxes that they pay. So about 30 is the income tax that, or other associated payroll taxes that, uh, that the staff pay. So what really matters is not what the media goes on about, about assets being booked in a different jurisdiction. It doesn't matter where the brass plate company is. It doesn't matter who's processing trades, whether it's on one exchange or another. What matters is where the m most highly paid people are sitting, because that's where the taxes get paid. And um, it's no surprise to me at all. Few people moved and therefore the UK will keep that tax income. Yeah, Nigel actually told me a story about this. I think it was from discussing with, with friends at the cricket, of course, where he was explaining how uh, a large investment banking deal had been done and the whole process had played out in the UK. And uh, in order to keep the regulators happy, it had all been booked subsequently through the European markets. And it was, I thought it was a good illustration and example of the fact that you know, what really matters is not where the final trade is booked, as your email to me actually pointed out as well. And it's not so much where the assets are held, but where the, the people are that make the decisions. And um, like you say, where they pay taxes, that, that's always good when they do pay taxes. One of the things I wanted to ask both of you is how plausible were these warnings that there was going to be this huge exodus of, you know, from the city? Because there was so much credibility behind these projections for so long. And it makes me wonder then if they weren't plausible, what's what's going on there? What's what's behind them? And if they were, what did people get so completely wrong? Well, um, well, that, I thought they were ludicrous. I, I forget the exact number of how many people work in the city of London, but it's I think it's uh, something like four hundred thousand people or something like that. And that's including all the people that work in everything. I mean, it includes the street sweepers. It's not just the people that work in banking. It also includes all the lawyers, the accountants. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the number of people that work, work in finance, so principally we're talking here about asset management and international investment banking type activities and trading, uh, 
um, you know, I don't know what the number is, but let's say, you know, this is, this is a, by the way, this is, the industry is a regulated oligopoly. Investment banking has, I don't know, maybe eight big, there are maybe eight big global investment banks and they're protected by the, the moat of regulation. It makes it so difficult for new companies to break in. So they fight, they fight tooth and nail for market share within their industry, but, but a new entrant is, is virtually impossible. And occasionally one goes by the wayside or there's a merger and then it becomes even more concentrated. Anyway, so, you know, there are maybe, so let's say there are eight big investment banks in London and uh, they each employ between five and 10,000 people. So let's guess that there are 75,000 people that work in that industry in London. This is, this is off the top of my head. And, uh, you know, how many of those are going to move to, to Europe? Well, I think there was a study done by there was a study done by somebody. It was I, I can't remember if it was the London, London Stock Exchange or one of the accounting firms, but they were talking about hundreds of thousands of people at the top end moving out of London, and that was just clearly pie in the sky nonsense. Now, motivations wise, and by the way, I think the actual number I've seen fairly recently. I think the actual number is about seven and a half thousand people across all the financial services sector. So you're talking about, you know, maybe again, 2%, 2% of the top end, 2% of the whole industry. If, if we're looking at that sort of 300,000-ish level or, or whatever the number is. Um, so, you know, it always just seemed crazy. Uh, and I, what's the motivation? Well, we can only assume it's, it was to scare people, right? <laughs> I couldn't see any basis for it, that's for sure. John, I don't know if you have a different perspective on that. Well, I, I think, again, a lot of people were thinking... Uh, very theoretically and on paper, but they, they weren't really thinking deeply or historically. And, and the fact is, right, you know, London has been Europe's dominant financial center for, I mean, about 500 years. Now, now I mean, that's a long time, okay? Um, I mean, Am Amsterdam sort of lost the title to London, you know, between four and 500 years ago. I mean, that, that's a long time ago. And and, there, and, and the fact is, is that the, the city of London is, is very good at protecting itself, promoting its interests and retaining that leading position historically. I mean, we've gone through wars on the continent. We've gone through revolutions. We've gone through the German Solverein. We've gone, which was a, a, a customs union, a continental customs union. We, we've gone through all kinds of things. And yet the position of London as a global slash European financial center has grown and grown. And, and so that's occurred in almost every conceivable context with the occasional setback, of course. The idea that this relatively young um, supranational entity known as the EU uh, is, is going to completely upend centuries of European financial evolution is just nonsensical. And, and I never took these arguments seriously that all of a sudden with the stroke of a pen, a gaggle of bureaucrats in Brussels were going to suddenly rewrite uh, you know, European history this way. It, it wasn't going to happen. So, uh, so and, and no one ever made these references. I mean, people didn't even know their data. Uh, of all the major Northern European cities, the city pair, which has uh, exchanged by value the greatest trade between each other through the centuries is London and Hamburg. There is just no way 
that, again, a gaggle of bureaucrats in Brussels are going to undo centuries of extremely profitable economic trade with hugely powerful political lobbies on both sides. The EU cannot simply pick up the phone and call Germany Inc. and make these sorts of demands that they're going to get their way uh, and be you know, tough on London and force everyone to, who's valuable to migrate to the continent. It's not going to happen. So I never really took those, as you call them threats, I never really took them ser uh, seriously. Can I just maybe add a, add a point, which um, something that made me laugh was they were talking about where these people might move to. So the, the typical ones people talk about were Frankfurt, Paris, and Dublin. Now I sort of get Dublin because there are some tax breaks for corporations that are set up there and if the profits and things. Don't think they'll last long, by the way, with the US pushing for minimum tax rates around the world and the EU going along. But uh, you know, that, was, that had some plausibility to it. Frankfurt, well, um, you can speak more to that, but I, 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 I don't know Frankfurt personally, but I've, I've heard it's not a particularly exciting place to live. And then you've got pa Paris is just a joke. Um, you know, the tax in France, you know, the idea that, that wealthy hedge fund managers and investment bankers and, and traders were going to move en masse to Paris and pay French income and wealth taxes is just a joke. That was never going to happen, whatever promises they got from the government. So... And there's one final thing, as I'd say, is that we shouldn't forget there are two major financial centers in Europe. There's London, and the other one is Switzerland. And Switzerland's not in the EU. Um, now, Switzerland isn't so famous for trading shares and bonds and things, although they do do quite a lot of that there. It's, of course, it's a, it's a place where the wealthy park their money um, for it to be you know, wealth management or private banking, whatever you want to call it, um, place where trillions of uh, dollars of money is, is parked to be looked after by uh, reliable Swiss bankers. Now, isn't it interesting that the other big financial center in Europe is also not on mainland EU territory? Anyway, over to you, Nick. Yeah, I think that's opened up a whole bunch of the questions that I've got for you for the rest of this video. Um, but first of all, I wanna ask John, Presumably, these consultants and, and, and you know, economists had a reason for, for their projections and, and had some method behind madness. So. I mean, first of all, what could it have been? And, and secondly, the, the second part of my question, which I'm really fascinated by, is what were they thinking then? What were they doing if it, if it was this obvious? Well, again, they were they were thinking without any historical perspective whatsoever, and they were they were doing simple back of the envelope calculations where they took a look at just the percentage of transactions uh, that, that logically would be co uh, completed and domiciled entirely within the EU and that didn't require any any uh, UK London based component because there was no no UK domicile component to the transaction. It was a financing deal in France, say, that uh, was being sold to German investors. And they would look at something like that and say, well, all the jobs associated with that activity are going to relocate to the continent, some combination in that case, say, of Paris and Frankfurt. And so they they simply, I believe, thought in an extremely facile faction. And then they and then they sort of goal seeked the result, probably uh, based on what could well have been. Uh, an agenda of some sort to provide some support to a given viewpoint. Because let's face it, this is such finger in the wind, kind of just, you know, it's a garbage in, garbage out in terms of the assumptions you make. And, and the assumptions themselves are so fraught with, with God knows how many um, sort of unknown variables. But, you know, if you have an agenda, you've got to find a way to navigate, uh, you know, through that morass and come out with something that at least looks uh, to be a robust analysis. I think a lot of it was just dressed up 
uh, pimped up, uh, you know, sort of reports to to satisfy the the intended audience. Just to be clear, we are still talking about Brexit in the banking industry, not the pandemic. Let's also mention why um, why it is that there's these 500 years of history of, of the financial system and the financial centre of the world being in London. Um, my understanding is that it's a question of the, le- the legal system of the UK, uh, especially. Uh, and also, I think one of you should comment on this idea of the UK being the gateway to the EU, and that's why London is the financial centre. I'm sure you'd like to comment on that, John, actually. Well, well, absolutely. And, and look, what's interesting about the UK's history within the EU is that the UK always had a very different approach to financial regulation. There's kind of a continental system when it comes to financial regulation, which is much more Napoleonic. That is, you kind of have to prove um, in advance that what you're doing either clearly is allowed by law um, whereas in the UK, it, it's a little bit, it's the other way around. You, you basically get away with what you can get away with until perhaps uh, some legal regulatory authority decides that you've pushed a little bit too far, in which case a negotiation uh, begins regarding whether the existing law should be regulation, should be modified in order to in fact allow that activity which customers appear to want. It's a much more pro-business, light touch entrepreneurial regulatory mindset, which has its ultimate basis in English common law rather than Napoleonic law. So this is a huge advantage and it's a huge advantage both on the on the sell side and the buy side. Asset managers want to be able to invest in exotic structured products. And therefore on the sell side, they want to be able to provide and trade and add liquidity to those exotic structured products. Whereas in Germany or France, they would take a look at that and say, where in the Napoleonic Code does it say that this exotic structured product is allowed to exist? It's a completely different mindset. So, yeah, I, look, I agree with uh, I agree with that, John. Um, I'd, I'd probably add, though, I think there's a bit of a historical quirk in all of this, because, of course, you know, Britain had its empire all around the world. And that uh, created very much a sort of trading and investing uh, mentality in the whole country. I mean, they were funding bonds in South America and in Asia and this and that, and the other building infrastructure and all the rest of it. And of course, the empire is now now long gone. Um, but a consequence of that is not just that 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 uh, that concept of common law has spread around lots of parts of the world, but also that of course the language is so ubiquitous. It, you know, it's it's kind of everywhere. Even when I worked for. Um, for UBS, you know, all the meetings we had in Switzerland, the, the, the direction came down from the chief executive, all meetings must be held in English. If there's any non-Swiss person in the room, everything has to be in English. And that's the language of business. And so the US, you know, we had our little spats, you know, a, a few hundred years ago, but uh, we're still pretty good friends, I think, hopefully. But uh, you guys went off and did extremely well. And that clearly has continued the dominance of English because everyone wants to trade with the world's biggest economy. And so that English language, I think, is not something that should be underestimated. And I know lots of people in Europe nowadays, you know, I remember going on holiday to France, uh, say, 20 years ago, and virtually nobody would speak uh, English to you. Nowadays, all the young kids speak English across Europe. So maybe that slight edge is gone, but it's a reason why we are where we are today, I believe. Let's move on to something that I've often focused on for, for the Brexit story, which is it's not so much about the situation that the EU is in and not so much the situation that Britain is in or even about the divide, but it's about the longer term direction that those two bodies are now taking. So on the one hand, you've got the EU, which is likely to become much more regulatory interventionist um, and you know, all of these other factors that I don't think favour financial 
uh, financial centres. Whereas the UK should be doing the opposite. It should be becoming even more friendly to, uh, to the financial system and, and to, to hosting the, the world's financial centre. Is that, you know, first of all, do you agree? And also, do you think that's going to matter much? I, I think there's an interesting point to make here, actually. I have some, some friends from my days in Germany who are you know, quite senior successful people. And we had some discussions about Brexit uh, following the referendum and in the subsequent years. And while they were not necessarily pro or anti-Brexit, I mean, they, they saw it as you know, very much a UK issue and UK decision, they were anti-Brexit in practice because they simply didn't like the idea of the UK leaving the EU because it meant that they were gonna lose a voice for a less bureaucratic Brussels approach to business and regulation. And they liked that. They liked having the UK in the EU. They saw it as a natural restraint on the bureaucracy running away with itself and falling under too much pressure from Paris, for example. And so they were anti-Brexit, but only for that reason. They never thought, or and still don't, uh, that somehow it was negative for the UK itself. So yes, there's this very real risk that is sensed amongst the more entrepreneurial business and commercial oriented people in Germany that Brexit is net net negative for the EU because of this tendency towards top down heavy handed regulation. Whereas the possibility exists that the UK may reorient in a slightly more uh, competitive international way to compete for general international business and to you know, reestablish uh, some of those ties and strengthen some of those old Commonwealth associations. This is the, the key argument for why the next exit from the EU is going to be Nexit, because the Dutch have been very much isolated within the EU because they've lost their traditional ally in the UK for the reasons that, that John's just said. Rob, what do you think of the argument? Well, I basically agree, but I think it's going to take a long time. I mean, there are some tentative signs of sort of vaguely thinking or indicating a direction of travel in terms of reforming um, regulation of insurance with some of the solvency requirements, which are rather onerous within the EU, um, and also perhaps some of the more unnecessary, burdensome administrative bureaucracy around asset management and signing people up for funds and that type of thing. Now, whether much happens quickly, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I fear that uh, the bureaucracies, whether they're the regulatory bureaucracies or the civil service or the government, um, have become rather EU mindset over the last 20 or 30 years. And there will be a process of, of sort of reinventing the way that they think and regaining some of that more kind of business-friendly mindset. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic in the short term, but I think in the long run, there will be divergence. We will see the most likely see the EU go down a more and more burdensome and ludicrous regulatory uh, rabbit hole. And we will see um, the UK slowly work out ways to rediscover some of its historical uh, global entrepreneurialism and particularly in the faster growing parts of the world. So not just Asia, by the way, but um, you know, over time, Africa, is a vast continent with a fast growing um, population. In fact, I think it's gonna create, it's gonna be one of the places over the decades that's gonna create most of the population growth uh, uh, in the future, along with the Middle East. And that's obviously smack in the same time zone. Uh, it was always one of the joys of talking to foreign offices when, when we were in London, was that when you talked to Johannesburg, it was exactly the same time zone because you just went south a lot. 
um, rather than talking to sort of Tokyo, which was miles away or, or Los Angeles or wherever. So I think it will happen. I just think it'll be a slow process, is my guess. So the underlying point there is that it's, it's a risk to relocate to the EU when they're going in that direction. And uh, there may be an opportunity uh, in the UK and, and, and London. Let me ask, uh, a, you know, it sounds like a silly question, but um, John, you go first. Does London need the EU or does the EU need London? Well, look, I mean, look, people trade for a reason. They trade because it's mutually beneficial. And while the politics of Brexit may have led to this, you know, very difficult uh, diplomatic sort of impasse, which we're in certain respects, we're still in, right? Many issues have not yet been resolved. There are lots of sunset provisions that may still come into dispute as they go through the sunsetting. Um, you know, things have been cropping up, such as the, the shellfish trade from time to time, whatever it is. But the fact is, there are too many people in the UK and too many people in continental Europe who benefit from mutual trade. And it's my opinion that all of the brinksmanship from Brussels, which you heard practically every day for a, you know, a multi-year period there, um, has already calmed down to some extent, will continue to calm down. There are just too many people on both sides of this divide who benefit from each other, from trading from each other. Now, again, sadly, if the EU continues down that you know, heavy-handed uh, bureaucratic road, they'll be less positioned to benefit from it. Uh, but it is, but again, the, the history I mentioned earlier, the fact that you know, London and Hamburg and there are other city pairs involved here uh, have traded in huge and profitable amounts with each other through the centuries. Uh, I, you know, that, that's not going to simply stop. And there, there's going to be a lot of natural bottom-up pressure placed on the Brussels bureaucracy to the extent people sense that they are not allowing for, for reasonably free and fair mutual trade to continue post-Brexit. Yeah, I want to dig into some of those uh, more bizarre constraints and, and border issues and what's behind those, because I think they're telling, they're telling people a lot. But first of all, Rob, do you think that London needs the EU or does the EU need London more? But I mean, just to clarify, are we talking about the financial industry? Because if we're talking about the financial industry, then I would say that the EU probably needs London more, or the UK more than the UK needs the EU. Now, I, I don't know. I don't have a clue what precise percentage of the revenue generated in the city of London comes from EU business. But I suspect it's only a fraction because they, you know, this is a location that's dealing with all parts of the world. And of course, the, the, the huge domestic UK market, which is a, a very substantial, for example, pension market. Uh, I believe it's still the largest in, in, in Europe. Um, so I suspect it's that way around, that the EU needs the UK, needs London, needs the city of London specifically when it comes to capital raising and liquidity and trading and structuring expertise and legal expertise, global legal expertise and cross-border M&A, you know, mergers and acquisitions, buying companies, selling companies. Uh, you know, that expertise, that nexus is in the city of London, in the square mile and Canary Wharf. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to come and look for it there. That's where it is. Yeah, that last bit is what I was trying to get at is, is the fact that they need to come to London. That is the nature of what, what is going on here. So the idea that they can take it from London doesn't really work because, you know, that, that's where it is. That's where the capital is raised. That's where the capital goes that, that is looking for a home. So uh, I think they had, they had things a bit backwards there for a long time. Well, a, 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 a crucial point is that some, somebody that works on a lot of these sorts of complicated transactions, does not they're an expert in the type of transaction. They don't tend to focus. You have a few specialists that focus on countries, 
but most of them focus on the type of transaction. They'll be working on stuff all across the world. They'll have expertise on how to do certain things. And when somebody from a particular client in a particular country wants that expertise, they have to go to that specialist. And that's, there is, that specialist doesn't exist in every place in the world. They exist in the hubs, the centers, New York, London, Hong Kong, Tokyo. Um, that's it. Let's go back to some of what John mentioned, I think a few times actually. The, you call it the politics of Brexit. And you mentioned the fact that the whole point of free trade and open markets is that it's mutually beneficial. Therefore, any constraint on that free trade is, is mutually harmful. But that seems to me to undermine the entire negotiating position of the EU. And it makes me wonder what it is that they're actually negotiating for, given the fact that, you know, the fact that the UK is, has left the EU doesn't change the fact that trade is mutually beneficial and open markets are mutually beneficial. So what was the EU's motivation behind, you know, what were they negotiating for? What were they trying to achieve? Right. I, I think, I, I think that, uh, it, what, what, it once it became clear, and it didn't become clear immediately when the referendum went, result came out. But once it did become clear that, uh, and this this happens when Johnson uh, gets into office and May is gone, because May Theresa May presided over prevarication, right? And once Johnson shows up on a on a mandate to get Brexit done, as he must have said a thousand times, uh, that 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 changed the, the the reality on on the ground. And from that point forward, I think the intransigence that was coming from Brussels was directed dispro disproportionately far more at other potential exit candidates than at the UK itself. They wanted to demonstrate that the costs of leaving were prohibitively high, especially, of course, around the EU periphery, where you have the tremendous amount of dependence on a lot of the fiscal transfers that take place within the EU. And that is of course sacrosanct in Brussels because that is the course that they want to stay on. They want ever closer fiscal union. They, and they're very open about that, that that's where they want to go. And so they, you know, clearly, if they're going to push in that direction, one that in theory they can claim is a huge benefit to the EU periphery, because they're net recipients of those funds, well, then they can also use the, the stick approach of how they were uh, treating the UK. So you've got the carrot and the stick coming from Brussels as an attempt to ensure that the remaining EU members don't even give it a moment's thought to consider leaving the bloc. But I still don't understand what the EU negotiators pitch would have been during those negotiations. So you know, if they said, well, if, if you want to leave the EU, then we're going to place these restrictions on you. And the UK negotiator says, well, why? They're only going to harm all of the people involved. Why would you do that? And I've just, I've never had, I mean, what does the EU negotiator say? That we, why would they want to harm everyone involved? Or how could, how could they explain but, that? But, but Nick, you can, you can generalize that sort of thinking to the, the, the entire concept of government bureaucracy and regulation in general, right? The, there, there are simply, there are those who believe that spontaneous bottom-up organization of society through a free market, however, within a robust legal system, one would hope, um, is the way to go about doing things. Whereas there are others who believe that the way to go about doing things is to direct it from above. And, and to be fair, almost every human uh, civilization and society is some combination of the two, but clearly on either side of the channel, the balance is, is very, very different. 
And that cultural divide is far wider than the channel. I would just add that, you know, I just think they're political ideologues and rationality and logic doesn't come into it. And, you know, political ideologues throughout history have done all sorts of self-damaging stuff in the, in the name of their ideology. Um, so I, I think that's a large part of it. It still baffles me that it can occur because what excited me about these negotiations was that it was such a clearly bizarre position that the EU was in to say, you know, because you're leaving the EU, you know, British people will now have to um, get a, a, a visa or have to get a, uh, a SIM, uh, the SIM card, the roaming charges or whatever it might be. And, and why? Currently, we don't have them. Why, why would we do that? Why? What's the requirement to impose that? It's purely artificial. And I just thought it would help people to realize just how absurd the, the treatment of the EU is of, of you know, nations outside the EU. And I thought it would make people question exactly what John was saying, that the whole nature of the premise of, well, if these regulations or the absence of these regulations are good when the UK is inside the EU, it, they don't suddenly become a, a bad idea uh, when, when the UK leaves because they're either good or they're bad. It, it doesn't change once the UK is out. But it seems to me like nobody's particularly changed their mind about it um, as a result of what these negotiations are. And I thought, you know, the stories about the ham sandwiches causing customs issues and all these sorts of ridiculous things, I would have thought that the EU has so massively overstepped the boundaries of absurdity in order to try and punish people, as John was saying, that it's just so blatantly obvious to everyone that this is absurd, that the EU's credibility would be so fundamentally undermined that it would lead to these sorts of you know, Brexit-style events in the future. But that doesn't seem to be happening, at least not well, there, yet. There's, I, I mean, Nick, there, there's an EU religion, right? There are, there, there are a lot of people who live in continental Europe who think that the EU is a force for good, full stop. That, you know, that, that integration under Brussels is good no matter how it's done, full stop. And, and, and that mentality is not going to change because of this rational, uh, sort of reasonable picking apart of Brussels' completely untenable uh, positions during the negotiations, right? Um, so that, that religion will remain, and it will remain until perhaps things in the EU get a hell of a lot worse in a couple decades time where people aren't allowed to well, aren't allowed to do almost anything without express permission from the bureaucracy. Rob, do you think it's going to take that long for um for the next crisis first of all and if that next crisis does occur has has Brexit changed the the situation dramatically from what the, what it was in 2010 and 2012? Well, uh I mean timing timing a crisis is always difficult, but you know, you, we we all know, I think, around this 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 group that the pressures are building in terms of debt piles and financial imbalances, the, the target two stuff, the, the way that money flows between the different banks and the different countries, the fact that all these governments are propped up by massive uh, money creation to buy bonds issued by the different governments that the ECB is doing, et cetera, et cetera. So the pressure is building. Eventually, you're going to have some uh, some point where things fracture. Now, I thought that when COVID came along, the pandemic, I thought that that huge recession might be another pressure point. But it's been a rather odd recession in the sense that governments all around the world have printed loads and loads of money and everyone's sort of stayed at home and been paid to stay at home. And um, bank balances have actually gone up, not down, and, and things are bouncing back quite quickly and all the rest of it. So that wasn't the, the, the triggering event. But I suspect in some countries, when, when we get our next proper recession, deep recession at some point, or new financial crisis of some type, 
or governments having to hike taxes because they reach some sort of tipping point where their finances are going down the hole. Then we'll, we'll find suddenly there's a surge in support for separatism and getting, getting out of the EU again in some spots. And I just finally say that we mustn't forget that separatism never went away in parts of the EU. So, you know, in, in Spain, the Catalans and the Basques were always quite keen to break away from Spain. And it's not that long ago that, that there were bombs going off uh, in Spain. Now, that was a local problem. Now, you imagine when one or, or more country within the EU has a big enough upswelling of people that, that decide they want to get violent about their independence um, and their government won't let them or the EU removes the exit uh, clauses from the treaties at some point, uh, then we're gonna, the EU is going to be really in a big mess and we're going to have domestic, big domestic violent problems. I think one of the great uh, benefits of Brexit that people um, don't talk about nearly enough is that it sort of it's like letting the the lid off the kettle and all the steam goes out and all the pressure that was building up as people were getting more and more fed up with the EU and i think we'll see that in some other EU countries the pressure is continuing to build and eventually it's going to you know we're going to get a big eruption of of i hope hope not but i think we're going to get an eruption of violence if if it goes on too long in some shape or form somewhere I think it's going to be a lot more likely that the kettle explodes before the lid gets taken off. I expected this to be a short video um, just discussing this banking situation, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it and it's been fascinating. We've gone on for long enough. Thanks very much for joining us and everyone at home, thanks for joining us as well.